Well, if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 10 is where I would invite you to turn to, Acts chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible or if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if you turn to page 779 in the seat Bibles there, you'll be exactly where we need to be. Acts chapter 10, page 779 in the church Bibles. And I'm going to begin reading from verse 34 all the way to verse 44. I didn't do this in the first service, but maybe I should do it in the second. Just, Just to thank everyone for all their hard work. A lot of people had to do a lot of things to enable this to happen. And of course, God was behind it all. So we just want to make sure that everybody knows they're very thankful. I'm very thankful and not that I'm the official thanker, but someone needs to say it. So I just did. Verse 34. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us whom ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Will you please stand with me just briefly? as we just seek the help that we need this morning. Our God and Father, our heart's prayer this morning is that you would open our eyes so that we would understand and obey and conform to the wonderful things in your word. May the Holy Spirit come on all of us who hear this message, and we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. You can be seated. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is the sum and the substance of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the melody line of the entire Bible. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. Everything the Bible says was created by him and everything was created for him. He holds the whole world together. All of history is measured by Jesus Christ and all of history will culminate and bow at the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things, and Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, God has spoken finally, and he has spoken fully, and he has spoken savingly. Where Jesus Christ lived on this earth, he died a crucified death, so sin-filled people like me may be forgiven of the sins that would separate me from God, stir his wrath, and bring with it eternal punishment. Jesus Christ is alive 
For God raised him from the dead. And Jesus Christ is the God-appointed judge of the living and the dead. Now, let's be perfectly clear. If Jesus Christ was dead and is now risen, as the Bible says he is, then each of us must understand that we will reckon with him. For he is the most important individual in our life. He can either judge us and condemn us or he can judge us and forgive us. And what he is to us in life and in death means absolutely everything. But also, let's be perfectly clear, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, we shouldn't even bother with him at all. And this gathering has absolutely no meaning at all. John Newton, the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace that we just sang, in another hymn wrote this line, What think you of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of Him. As Jesus appears in your view, as He is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you and mercy or wrath are your lot. Now my great concern today is to put Jesus in our view. For if Jesus is the only Savior that can save us from our sins, and the Bible says He is, that it makes all the sense in the world to me as we read that Jesus commanded his followers to herald him, to announce him, to publicize him. That's a literal reading of the Greek word for preaching in verse 42a. And it makes all the sense in the world that Christ commanded his own to earnestly, intensely, repeatedly tell the truth of his saving work to other people. And that is exactly what the word testify means in verse 42b. Now, Peter, in this proclamation, is not telling people about his feelings he has. He is not telling people what's on his mind. He is not telling people how he can help fix things or improve earthbound preoccupations. He's not dressing a certain way or saying certain things to be more appealing. No, Peter is staying on message. He's not using any tricks. He's preaching Jesus because only Jesus Christ can save and keep saving. Peter is simply testifying to the historical facts that he himself witnessed of the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter is making it unmistakable and clear that Jesus Christ and Christianity rest on historical, verifiable, logical events. Historical. It actually happened. Verifiable. You can check things out to see if they really did happen. And it's absolutely logical that as we see things as Christ who is Lord tells us they are, then His life and His death and His resurrection make absolute sense. Historical, verifiable, logical. Verse 36 That's and 7. That's why Peter says, You know the message. You know what happened. Verse 39, if your Bibles are open, you know that we are a witness to the death of Christ and His resurrection. Verse 41, certain elect people know. They saw Him. They actually shared a meal with Him. Verse 43, in the Old Testament, knows and it's absolute in line with everything that was done by Jesus and everything that was said by Jesus. In other words, Peter is saying this, think, not feel, not yet. Feelings might come and they probably should come, but we should all know this, that all of Christianity is held in check, restrained by, and rests soundly in the historical, verifiable, absolutely logical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, Peter had a contemporary. His name was Paul. And Paul does the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. He tells them that there had been over 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And he says it real plain. He says, if there is no risen Christ, then there is no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, I'm quoting from a Bible translation called The Message. If there is no resurrection, if Christ weren't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and resurrection because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. You see, the good news is sound news. Christianity is not founded on any kind of superstitious feeling. It is not founded on, the, founded on the ramblings of just one man. It's not a mystery. It's not founded on a series of steps that somebody has to take. A, a never-ending cycle of striving without ceasing. Which were the Buddha's final words to his followers. Christianity is not blind faith. It is not on human achievement, improvement, or zeal. Christianity is found on a crucified Savior who is risen and who will absolutely return to judge the living and the dead. Someone once said a while ago that what comes to our minds when we think about Christ is the most important thing about us. And I think that we were honest, we would say that is true. So then Jewish Peter... The Jewish Peter here in a Gentile context who grew up with a steady diet of believing that they were the only ones, they were the only ones that God really loved in verse 34 and in verse 35 now understands the truth. God does not have favorites. The gospel is for everyone. So there's no special nation. There's no special race or nationality or class of people. There's no appearance that would appeal to God. That God would have his eye exclusively on. Now, if we're honest, we know that we humans, we do this all the time. We're always making judgments based on a person's race or their face or their place or their taste or their personality or their popularity or their rank or so on. But God does not do that. He shows no partiality. Sometimes humans like to believe that we've got our own little God thing going on and all those other people, well, God isn't so going to be quite so good to them as, as, as we are. And we have to say this because the times demand this. Why would we believe that? Would we say that because we have wee little children? Do we know how many wee little children die every day in our world? Would we say that God maybe looks on us a bit better because our homes are concrete and wood and people somewhere else have bamboo and straw homes? Would we say that God looks a little bit more on us because we can actually pay our home loans, but other people's loans have to be subsidized? Would we say that God has that special thing about us because we're Americans and everybody knows that America stands with God? Our founding fathers stood with God, and yes, they did. But our founding fathers were the ones who came up with a three-fifth compromise, Article 1, Section 2, Paragraph 3 of the United States Constitution that said a black man is only worth three-fifths of a white man. And in that context, a black woman, woman and a white woman didn't really count at all. And because of that partiality, over half a million men died 150 years ago. It was called the Civil War. 
Now, I'm not trying to be unkind, but I am trying to be correct. All humanity has this deep propensity to show favoritism, but thank God that God does not. Christianity is supernational. God has no favorite nations. He has no favorite people. He has his eye and his hand and his heart toward every nation and every people and every language and every tongue. He wants all people here this morning to be saved. Now, a while back, I was in a context where a missionary was speaking to a group of pastors, and he came up with this little story that I thought I should tell you. He was in, this was in the 1970s, the Iran hostage ordeal was going on, and he asked the people, how many of you are praying for the hostages in Iran? And everybody there raised their hand. And then he asked, how many of you are praying for the conversion of the Iranian people? And nobody raised their hand. Now you can imagine that Peter, this Jew, in this Gentile context, his audience would have to have been absolutely thrilled. Because they had been told time and time again, and maybe you have, that God has his favorites, and it's the Jewish people. And the Gentiles are unclean, and they're cursed, and they will never have the smile of God on them. And if you were a Roman Gentile, things were going to be really worse, because when Messiah came down and brought his kingdom here, you're going to be in big trouble. But now Peter knows better, and now the Gentile knows better. No one is beyond saving. He now realizes, verse 35, for the, the criteria for salvation is to do what is right, to fear the Lord God Almighty, and you will be accepted. So there's no barrier to Christ. And what Peter does is exactly what I'm going to try to do this morning with our remaining time. Peter begins to show them what it means to fear God and what it means to do what is right because we can't make that kind of stuff up in our head. So then Peter says, in a nutshell, the gospel. Peter's going to tell them about the life of Jesus. He's going to tell them about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Simple and straightforward. And that's the line that will follow. The life of Jesus, verse 36 and 39a. And we should just thank God that Jesus even came to this earth at all. And if you said what one word could express the totality of Jesus' ministry, the word is simple and it's good. It's, you can see that there plainly. Three and a half verses says that Jesus Christ was the embodiment of the good news of God and that God had sent to his people. When you saw Christ, you saw God. And the good news of peace now between God and man comes through Jesus Christ alone. And just a brief aside, because again, we need to do these things. If you ask the average person, okay, or maybe even the average religious person, or maybe even, unfortunately, the average Christian. How can you have peace? I mean, it seems like the world is in desperate need of it. How can you have peace with God and have peace with yourself and peace with others? Many might say, well, I can meditate. I can pray. I only fill my mind with good things and happy things. Maybe a good movie every once in a while. I watch my diet and I watch my exercise and those endorphins they just come and they do their wonderful little work for me and I I can have peace because of extreme physical monetary spiritual discipline because I run a tight ship and I plan ahead but that would be all wrong and if you're a Christian it's simply just dressed up legalism for peace this way is only temporarily Charles Spurgeon on one occasion, in fact, actually on the morning of April 23rd, said, your prayers, your repentance, and your tears mean nothing apart from Christ. 
None but Jesus can help helpless sinners. And none but Jesus can help helpless saints. So then Peter says in verse 36, and again, this is plain. You know the message. You know the logos. That's the Greek word there. You guys heard the message. You know what happened in the Middle East. In Judea. In Galilee. Galilee, verse 37. In fact, Jesus, or excuse me, Peter uses the phrase, beginning in Galilee. Now, is that important that Peter used that? Absolutely. In Galilee, where Jesus' ministry was housed, where Jesus returned, people knew Jesus. Shopkeepers, mothers, customers in need of carpentry, all could testify to the person of Jesus, and they could verify His wonderful work. So if somebody was curious and didn't believe, all they would have to do is go back to Galilee and maybe get their iPad out and ask the questions. Okay, tell me who he was. Tell me what he did. And they would be satisfied because people could verify. Not only did he exist, but there was no one like him. God's Spirit rested on Jesus. God's power emanated from Jesus. Disease was no match for Jesus. The devil and the evil works were crushed by Jesus. All it took was one little word and Jesus knocked him down. I just learned yesterday that when ancient pictures were done of the evil one, originally, they didn't make him look so large and scary like he was. They always drew him like little tiny mosquitoes in comparison to the human because of the great work of Jesus Christ and we need to think that stuff out. So you can imagine maybe Peter's listeners would go, would say, you know what? I remember I was there. I was there when the demon-filled naked man from Galilee was face-to-face with Jesus. It was like some kind of showdown. And all it took was one little word and one nanosecond and the guy was fixed. He was cured. No foe harmed him. No devil alarmed him. He was bowing to the might of Jesus. He was naked no longer. He was dressed and he was in his right mind and he was saved. And someone else could say, you know what, I remember there was a guy named Blind Bartimaeus. I remember because he just wouldn't shut up. He kept telling people, Jesus, or kept telling Christ, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus did have mercy on him. And Jesus said, Blind Bartimaeus, I want you to see. And he saw. And maybe someone else would say, Do you remember when he fed the 5,000? And on and on and on. So the question goes, why did Jesus do this? And how did Jesus do this? Verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit in power. And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And Peter in verse 39 says it this, the way I witness everything he did in the country of Jews and Jerusalem. See, Peter can authenticate it. He can endorse it. Everyone can say, we all can say yes to this. Because in all this, all Peter is doing is appealing to common knowledge. Common knowledge because it was true. And if the things weren't true, and if they didn't really happen, then anybody in that room could say, Peter, you're making all this up out of your head, but no one said anything. Now that's the life of Jesus. In one word, good. The second word or the second phrase is the death of Jesus. You see it there in verse 39b. Peter just takes a half a sentence to say this. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. Now, in a way that will not be immediately obvious to us, Peter is using terms that allow him to say more. 
Many of his listeners would know and they would understand perfectly what had been written in the Old Testament concerning the curse that rested on any person who was hung on a tree. In other words, hung on a cross. So when they would walk up and down the streets, all they would see is these crosses. That was the Romans' means of justice. And then there would be people hanging on those crosses for more than just Christ hung on a cross. And people would walk by those crosses and they would say, the curse of God be on that person. And they would be right. So someone would say, okay, you just said that Jesus was hung on a tree. That's right. And you just said that God said that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. That's right. And you just said Jesus was very good. That's right. And now you're saying that he's cursed because he was nailed to a tree? That's right. Because only wicked people can be cursed by God. That's right. Listen to how Peter describes the same event later on in his years. He, Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The reference to the tree and not the cross is purposeful. For God had declared, and we learned this this past Friday night, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, causing a thinking individual to say, how could the curse of God rest on the very Son of God? The answer is horrible, and the answer is wonderful, and the answer is Easter. Jesus was bearing in our place the curse and the judgment that was our sin he took our place he bore our sin he paid our debt and he suffered our curse now God's judgment on sin shouldn't trouble us one bit I know sometimes we like to think that why couldn't he just forgive and why couldn't he just let it go well just think with me for a moment we're very keen on debt these days all kinds of debt must be paid even if the even if the debt is forgiven It still has to be paid. The debt just cannot dematerialize. It is still accounted for or it wouldn't be a debt at all. And that is what we see when we see and face Jesus' death as it is. The penalty of sin, God says, is death. Therefore, as sinners, a penalty must be paid. The curse of God is his judgment on sin. If God would simply overlook it, then he would immediately cease to be God. But just as God's judgment is just, thank God that God's mercy is large. The debt owed cannot vanish. Someone has to deal with it, and someone, in some way it has to be reconciled. That's what Peter is declaring when he's saying that Jesus has paid it all. You see, the essence of sin is we substitute ourselves for God. The essence of salvation is God in Jesus substitutes himself for us. We are prideful in our sin. We try to do everything our own way, making up our own rules, and we turn into our, we look into ourselves a thousand different ways, and in that way we try to make ourselves the center of the entire universe. And the only way that we can escape that judgment, a judgment that should be so obvious to us, is to accept the death of Jesus as a payment for our wicked ways. To believe that he died to atone for sins, not his own. And that is the only offer that God gives us to be saved. Someone said a long time ago, in our place condemned he stood, bearing our sin, bearing our punishment, bearing our curse. And again, it's the only offer that God provides for us to be right with Him. Oh, what love is this that pays so dearly that I, the guilty one, may go free 
is right. And loved ones, listen. Christian are not this morning. We are guilty every day. And the only way we are accepted every day is the judgment that should be so clearly ours was placed on Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. For Christ, by His death, paid a debt that He did not owe because we owe a debt that we can never pay. And sometimes late at night when I'm worrying about all kinds of things, and if I told you those things, you, you probably would put me in another place. I always, I always wonder and I worry if anyone is reading books about this atonement of Jesus Christ, about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Is anyone reading books that speak of the wonder of Christ satisfying God's wrath for my sin, for our sin, by suffering and by death on a cross? And then when it gets to go on and, and I get a little more crazier, then I say, are they just reading books like The New You? Five Easy Steps to the New You. Or books like The Wonderful You. Why You Deserve the World. Or are they reading books that say it's all about you. Why everybody else is wrong and you are right. The one who is so beautiful and good. The one who had power over the natural world, over sickness and disease and death. The one who had power over the kingdom of evil. Had the power and had the love to remain on that cross, hanging first as an innocent man, so that he could then be cursed, be stricken because of guilty men and women like me and you. The Old Testament says it like this, Isaiah, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now you know this message. The concern here is all that we know about the message and its practical application. How big is that gap? Well, voices from the past need to help us here. I'm going to read two voices from the past, 18th century to be exact. Augustus Toplady, he, he was the hymn writer of Rock of Ages. He's, he's midstream in his life. It's December 31, 1767, and he's writing his last words for that year in his journal. And this is what he says. Upon a review of the past year, I confess that my unfaithfulness has been exceeding great. My sin still greater, God's mercy greater than both. And again, my shortcomings and my misdoings, my unbelief, my want of love would sink me into the lowest hell was it not that Jesus was my righteousness and my redeemer. Jonathan Edwards in the same century, Jonathan Edwards, just probably the greatest theologian America's ever produced yet, he said this, when I look into my heart and take a view of its wickedness, it looks like an abyss infinitely deeper than hell. And it appears to me that were it not for free grace, exalted and raised up to the infinite height of all the fullness and glory of the great Jehovah, I should appear sunk down in my sins, below hell itself, far below the sight of everything, but the eye of the sovereign grace that alone can pierce down to such death. And it is affecting to think how ignorant I was when a young Christian of the bottomless depths of wickedness, pride, hypocrisy, and deceit left in my heart. Now, dear ones, this is sound, solid voices of the past. 
God used these men mightily. They knew their sin. And they knew their Savior. And the question has to be asked, do we? There was a reason why Jesus was called a man of sorrow in Isaiah 53. So opposite sometimes in our day. Jesus lived. Jesus died. And finally Jesus is risen. No surprise here. Verse 40. God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. It's right back to the historical, verifiable, empirical, logical argument. Jesus Christ is risen. He has been seen. New American Standard. God made him visible. King James Version. God showed him openly. And Peter says that he is a witness. But not everybody. Verse 41. Not everybody is a witness. Why not everybody? Why just chosen witnesses? Aha! There's a problem there. Well, there's not a problem there. The original band of brothers acted like a bunch of little girls with my apologies to little girls. When Christ faced his death, they tanked on Jesus. And we know this because the Bible says it. It didn't hide it. You see, the validity of the story only increases because of the followers of Christ. They are not heroes here. If someone asked Peter, okay, Peter, how do you know? Peter would have to say this. I saw him risen after I knew him to be dead because I followed at a distance, too ashamed to be called one of his own because I was by a fire on a cold night after he was sweating on a cold night, great drops of blood because he was facing his passion. And then, lo and behold, I let a wee little girl, a servant girl, girl, talk me out of my devotion to him. And just like he told me, he told me that a rooster would crow, and the rooster crowed. And then he turned to me, and he looked straight at me, and I wept bitterly. You see, we are not to be bombastic as Christians when we tell this story. We're not to say, we are the Christians, we're always right, here we go. We must realize that we are the villains in this story. Uh, We are the villains of every chapter until we get to the last chapter, and that is because of Christ. So then Peter would say, they took him to the cross. And Peter would say, and God raised him from the dead. And then he would say, he's alive and he's returning. He told me to tell everybody everything about him so that people could be made right with God, so that people could be saved. He told me that people will have to stand at the bar of God's judgment one day and that Jesus Christ, who is alive, who is risen, is their only hope to be right at that day. Now, All throughout history, God always uses the most foolish, weak, despised individuals, low individuals, defend His honor and proclaim His glory. And I'm going to tell you about one. William Cowper was a, in all honesty, he was a metaphysical poet of the 18th century. But he had a wreck of a life. His childhood was horrible. His mom died when he was six. Immediately following the occasion, he was dropped off to boarding school. There he was bullied all the time because he was very, very small and he was very, very weak. He was amazingly fragile. His mind was equally fragile and and it always would give way. In fact, twice he tried to commit suicide. Finally, in 1756, he was committed as a young man to a lunatic asylum, asylum and that's what they were called in those days. 
And in those days, that was as good as dying. In fact, it was basically a sentence of death. He was weak. But he had a friend. And his friend's name was Dr. Cotton. And Dr. Cotton was a Christian. And Dr. Cotton did what Peter did. He tried to give him the gospel every day. But this proved very difficult. Cowper would cry out when the gospel was heard. He would say, my sin, my sin. Oh, for some fountain to open up for my cleansing. But he didn't know at that time if there was any such fountain, although he knew his sin. But the grace of God, and by the grace of God, Cowper was saved. And listen to what he says. The happy period, which was to shake off all my fetters, and afford me a clear opening of the free mercy of God in Christ was now arrived. I flung myself into a chair near the window and seeing a Bible there, ventured once more to apply it for comfort and instruction. The first verse I saw when I opened the book, the third of Romans, the 25th, Romans, the 25th verse, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Immediately I received strength to believe it. And the full beam of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement He had made. My pardon sealed in His blood and all the fullness and completeness of His justification. In a moment I believed and received the Gospel. Now when people receive the gospel, immediately they're given gifts by the Holy Spirit. And one of Cowper's gifts, what he, he wrote hymns and poetry. And this is one hymn that he wrote. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, I as vile as he, Wash all my sins away. Ere since by faith I saw the stream life flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Now, loved ones, in all this, the issue is very clear. If Jesus Christ cannot meet your needs on this earth, nothing on else, nothing on earth can. We may try and we are afforded a large opportunity in the West to fill that gaping hole in our soul with every kind of thing and every kind of activity until they come out of our ears. But you know and I know that they can't fix a broken, wounded, sinful heart. So the message is very clear. God in His mercy has provided one way of salvation. Faith in the risen Jesus Christ to those who genuinely repent. Faith is a gift from God when we trust in Christ to save us from our sins. And repentance is a gift from God when we are made to be truly, truly sorry for our sins. We don't just kind of amp over them or skip over them. They, we see what they are and we see what they did and we turn from them and we turn to Jesus and we begin to live to please Him. And then joy comes. Joy, quite honestly, in personal experience, that you will never, ever, ever, ever find anywhere else at all. 
Joy comes because everything about our salvation rests on the risen Savior. Everything about our goodness is His goodness. Everything about our life and our death is safe and sound. Hallelujah. What a Savior is Jesus. Now our time is done. Easter this way, 2011, is complete. Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. And before Jesus Christ judges you, let him save you. For in this Christ alone is our only hope. For you, for me, for all who believe. Just listen to your Bibles while Peter was still speaking these words. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. May the Spirit of the living God fall on everyone today. May it cast our sin away, and may we enter in to be born into Jesus Christ this day and forevermore. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow and pray, please. Our God and Father, we thank you so very much that there really is a fountain that is really filled with blood, drawn from Christ's veins. And we thank you that we plunge, can plunge ourselves beneath this fountain that cleanses us. We can rejoice in the beauty of Jesus even as we look upon the destructive nature of our sin. We can be happy. We can be glad. We can be thrilled only in Jesus and only and always in Jesus this morning and beyond as we honestly and genuinely surrender our life to Him. So I pray that faith in Jesus would come to all this morning. And I pray that repentance to Jesus would Mark us this morning so that the joy of knowing that our only hope in life and death is this, that we belong body and soul to our faith for Jesus Christ who saved us from our sins by his suffering and death on that cross and by the power of you, of you God, that raised him from the dead. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face to you and give you peace in Jesus. Amen.